0: Thank you, team, for having me here at IBS, first of all. And just a tiny bit of background about me before I go through the slides. I did my undergrad in Melbourne in Chinese and economics, and then came to the UK. My dad's from here, so I have a British passport. And I did my master's at SOAS, and then was an ODI fellow in Sierra Leone. And so that was 2003-05, and I, I think I was probably the only Westerner in Sierra Leone working for the government, paid by... European Union country and hanging out with all the Chinese and At the time, nobody cared about the topic, like nobody cared. If you actually tried to do that now, most of the Chinese would think you worked for MI5 or the CIA, but at that point, I was totally free to just hang out with all these Chinese engineers and, and, you know, I was the only non-Sereonian, non-Chinese at the opening of a a Chinese-run hotel in Freetown. And so so that kind of got me into, then I joined the World Economic Forum and no one was interested in China-Africa. In China, China, yes, but not China-Africa. And the Forum on China-Africa 2006 happened and I just thought, OK, what am I doing here, wasting my time in Geneva? So I applied for my PhD at Peking University and kind of pursued my China-Africa thing that way. So I know the China end, I guess, a bit better than the Africa end. I lived in Beijing six, seven years, whereas I've only worked in Sierra Leone and obviously Africa's what, 50 countries or so on. So you, you certainly can't know them all. So I, I know it from a, a very kind of macro lens and I guess a bit more from the China end than from any particular Africa and except Sierra Leone. So that's that's the kind of context of of my knowledge. And the presentation today is is really kind of a, I guess it's a series of Jigsaw pieces rather than one piece of research. You probably often have a presentation that is just like a particular paper, a narrow topic. This is a series of, of bits of research I've done, tried to kind of weave together in a picture To explain the kind of bigger concept of what the Belt and Road is and why is it happening now, and why is East Africa in focus. Um, So the overview. So what is the Belt and Road Initiative? I just say that in a few in a few figures and in words. And why is East Africa in focus? History, economic geography, and demography. Um, so what is the Belt and Road Initiative? Oh, by the way, this, I destroyed my computer in Ethiopia three days ago with a bottle of water, so I redid these last night on a, on a brand-new laptop bought at about 7pm at, at the Mac store in, London, in, in West London. So forgive me if there are any, any gaps. This was literally redone last night. Um, so China's economy has become a bit more like an elephant, certainly since the global financial crisis. Enormous at slower-moving... Um, so you know, many times the UK the economy now growth is now just six to six to seven percent, as compared to three decades of ten percent. That said, it's six to seven percent on 11 trillion dollars. So it might be slower moving, but the annual value added is even larger than it was previously. So don't be kind of fooled by the China's slower moving. It's it's still getting bigger each year by a bigger volume than it was when it was growing at 10 percent. Um, and this incremental, I guess, one of the big structural challenges is this incremental loss of low-wage cost advantage. So the fertility rate being below replacement level now for or, you know now for almost three decades. The, the particular turning point of interest is this. You know, everyone focuses on the global financial crisis as having induced China's you know kind of you know the drop of of export demand and so on. But behind that was this kind of you know, diminishing of the demographic dividend, which is what gave China such fast, low-cost, low-inflation growth for three decades, is both the kind of, you know, the Lewis turning point has coincided with, with population ageing, which is kind of a, a double whammy in, in, in a structural sense. So unusually, the two points are very close together, where the workforce age, working age population shrinks as a share of total population, and the Lewis model um, the Lewis turning point is reached. It's unusually close together in China which therefore necessitates kind of a, a big and dramatic structural shift um, and, then, and, and on top of which just this kind of odd fit factor of the one child policy and China's prioritisation of education means fair enough that you, know, you have kind of maybe two, two workers retiring for every new entrant or whatever is the ratio but these new entrants are so much more educated than the ones that part on like light years of, of difference in terms of average education. So that, that alone will put pressure on the growth model, um, or at least shift it. So structural imbalances, is a generic, kind of commonly known in the economics. So low rise in consumption, high savings rate and middle, um, concurrent with low demand for exports since the GFC, or is a, a diminished export demand. And excess industrial capacity, this, this relates to the fact that China's growth model was just unusually um, capital-intensive. That was a function of the political system. That was a function of the kind of state-owned enterprise dominance. That was a, a political convenience and a way to get fast growth. Um, you know, so just, now there is an unusual level of excess capacity of infrastructure, steel and so on. And so, despite being the world's second largest economy it really has kind of a very small place in the international monetary system so this is a kind of backdrop and so hence outbound investment and it's kind of an outbound investment and in monetary plan in response to all of those changes at home um, and then kind of what is the belt and road in a historical sense obviously, now don't get confused, this is a kind of a, a mistake that's commonly made is that the belt is the part on the land and the road is the part on the sea so you have to not, not get those backwards. So I guess the belt is, is the historical part, um, or the, the more prominent historical part, and I, and I call that markets old. And it's markets old on two fronts. <coughs> Number one, from the original Silk Road, that was a more pronounced and I guess continuous trade route, than well, then was the Maritime Silk Road, which was kind of four or five Chinese fleets. So markets old in a sense a much more established continuous trade route and markets old demographically and I'll show you another picture in a minute, but basically all of the countries on on the belt are aging have aging populations. Whereas all of, almost all of the countries on the road have demographically young populations and China has a much kind of less less intense history with those countries so uh, and, and, and is you know less established in the, in the Soviet sense or the, the transition economy sense and so on so call it kind of, you can think of the the, the belt first don't confuse that it's actually that's the land but it's markets old both historically and also demographically and, and markets new is the road both, or markets young um, and so actually this might have been better just, just before but so I guess it's just this is a kind of context, so China was a an inbound, a, a net inbound um, recipient of foreign investment until I think 2014, and you can just see that kind of skyrocketing. If that trajectory continues, then obviously this literally will be what she calls um, as the project of the century. Um, and behind that is this kind of foreign aid. So, you know, we we certainly in the OECD think of foreign aid as something at the margins, you know, which is helping the poor, helping education, and so on. China, on the other hand, um, I've recently published a chapter on this, if you're interested in this kind of story, but the way China views foreign aid is very different. It takes from the Soviet Union and Japan and sees it as a tool to basically encourage win-win trade investment and development. It's not something you use at the margins to help the poor. It's literally a tool for promoting economic growth, almost like an angel investment fund or a subsidy machinery. So, therefore, under this Belt and Road and China's outbound investment, you can expect its foreign aid to play a much bigger role. And, as I said, this isn't for helping kind of poor kids and villagers necessarily. This is really for stimulating economic growth at both ends. So, And, and that takes from Japan and, and the Soviet Union and China has added its own characteristics. So, in and of itself, it's not new, but the scale might, might be very new. So, you can see in China's foreign aid has been rising in the different types of, of, so if you're interested in aid, kind of un, unpacking how China will use that to promote its investment agenda and its trade agenda will become much more important over the next decade or so. Um, and so this is, a, this, is the, this is the demography graph. So what is the Belt and Road? As I was just saying, this is kind of, the, the road is marked young. So this is from a paper not yet published, so the background is in a 2015, or sorry, 2016 chapter, um, and China, China has this concept that it will be old before rich and this will inhibit its development because its wages will be expensive before it's reached the technological frontier. They'll have to pay for this massive burden of old people when they don't have the resources to do that, they don't have the talent level developed to do that. And um, in, a, in a different paper, in a different context, um, with some students at Beijing University, we kind of reevaluated the costs of that and the process kind of put all countries into the implicit four categories. is a slight deviation, sorry, but I'll just explain the graph. Um, so you've got poor and old countries, which are basically countries that are not yet in the high-income group, but their populations have already passed. Well, the, the peak defined as when your population is now aging, which is probably itself a bit old, given how, how, how given you know, rising longevity, but it's basically accepted that when the share when seven percent or more of your population are over sixty-five, you have an aging population. And so in that sense you can have kind of four types of economy. They can be rich and old, rich and young, poor and old, and poor and young. And so I guess that the most the, the rarest category is the rich and young category, which is basically OPEC members. Um, and then you have the poor and old countries, which you can see mostly in Latin America and the kind of transition economies of you know certainly of, of parts of Eastern Europe and kind of Central Asia. The OECD is basically all rich and old. And then, and then the road, the Maritime Silk Road, is basically, if you just see that, that's where all the poor young countries are. So if you're an optimist about growth and you think you can you know, help to induce a, a kind of Chinese-scale developmental revolution, then that's where you would do it. You would do it in the kind of low-hanging fruit. So as far as the Chinese see, they think, OK, 1980, we were poor and young, and this is what we did to get rich. So now today's equivalent poor and young countries are here, and that's a kind of low-hanging fruit, you know, developmental dividend, and part of that will be conditional on how much fertility does fall. Will there be a demographic dividend in those countries at all? Not if fertility stays at five and people survive. So it is a bit... that the scale of the windfall on where and how is conditional on what happens to fertility. But nonetheless, if you're just looking at it in a crude sense, the road is really kind of where all the young and the future consumers are. So China's cheap phones, you know, all over these low income these low income countries. So that's kind of markets of tomorrow. And Then if they get brand loyalty today, in twenty years when China's own brands are probably much more sophisticated and reliable, they will have, you know, the kind of key brands in the key population, consuming populations of tomorrow. Once you know the OECD's populations have shrunk minus immigration and so on, so this is kind of a long-run vision of the, of future markets based on its own demography of where they were in 1980. So kind of on, on the one hand you have the, the you know the trade with Europe and so on, and then and then really the road is all about is all about demographics and potential. Um, and then this is so this is the, the kind of words part. So I, I like this because this is doesn't say in the bottom book. This is taken from Xi Jinping's first mention of his, his Belt and Road idea, which was in Kazakhstan in I think October or September 2013. Um, and these areas don't come up as much anymore. This kind of joint incorporation and connectivity and infrastructure and so on, but. These were the kind of these were the, the five pillars that were mentioned in the very first idea, and that was in the sense of, of the belt, not the road. The road was announced at second in Indonesia. So this is in the first instance when there's this concept of returning to the original Silk Road, now known as the Belt. Um, so strengthening policy communications just lots more dialogue, improving road connectivity, you know that's that's good obviously, and you have to remember that China itself has always had a problem with income inequality between its regions. So right now, along the coast, people are, in fact, if you took the coast of China, it's probably already a high-income country. Just you take the whole nation and it's still middle-income. So you take the coast, you've got a bunch of high-income Chinese citizens, and then you've got people in the inland provinces who aren't allowed to move permanently to those high-income areas. They're kind of locked into their landlocked poorer provinces. And the only way to keep the people on the coast living this high-income lifestyle, kind of to keep their, their lifestyle exclusive. You can always think of Chinese people in the provinces, as, sorry, along the coast, as no different to Western, like OECD nation. They don't want all these Chinese poor peasants showing up in Shanghai, just like you know, your average Brexiteer doesn't want them showing up in London. You know, your average Beijing and your average Shanghais. Is no different to your average westerner living a high income lifestyle they 're very protective of their coastal high income sophistication and standard of living so therefore to keep China as a stable you know one nation, you really need to find a way to develop the inland provinces otherwise the whole the, the kind of deal collapses and so the the road is really part sorry the, the belt is part of that so that Connecting by road and so on to make sure those landlocked, poor, cut off provinces also can get prosperous without all insisting they be allowed to move to Shanghai or, or, or to Beijing. So, this is so that's, that's the kind of the road connectivity is important to reduce regional income inequality, not least just to promote trade in and of itself. Um, and enhanced monetary circulation this is kind of a testing ground for greater use of the Romanian trade without necessarily having to go to markets where, where it might be, you know, have a bigger uh, long-run effect and straight person-to-person exchange. So that was the kind of first launch that, you know, now it's been kind of updated and adjusted and modified since.
1: And then this, was a,
0: this was a mention of a month later in, in Indonesia, so this was the kind of second part. Um, and and this, was this was about the roads starting with Southeast Asia. And then, I think, oh, actually maybe it was in March, it was in Tanzania, but this wasn't linked to the Belt and Road, but that was the kind of East, East African connection. So the same principles, but without as much explicit elaboration of what it meant, and, you know, jointly cooperative and so on. And so, I guess in, in, in summary, what is the Belt and Road initiative, at least conceptually? Um, So an umbrella program for the outbound internationalisation of the Chinese economy is the effect, under which you can always put anything. Um, And, you know, it can be one thing today and one thing tomorrow. So it's really a kind of a synonym for China goes out into the world. And um, supported by win-win foreign aid and driven by an aim to create greater connectivity of hard and soft infrastructure, so of of people and and roads and, and so on. Um, and obviously, China is so large. You know, this is this is a, a, a very large. It will have it will have large multipliers and cylinders. Um So it's not it's not explicitly. So I focus on that kind of the geographic launch areas and the demography and the history story behind them. Um, but but the, the, the language of the Belt and Road since has been that you know this is a global this is a global initiative. Everyone can join without actually explicitly listing what is the membership criteria and what are the benefits. Like if, if if America, say, had a great project and it could somehow meet Belt and Road criteria, I doubt it would be denied funding. At the same time, maybe there are political costs to not officially signing up, so what it actually means to be involved is not known, and even I haven't seen an explicit like foreign ministry list of these countries are in and these countries are out, so it's a bit blurred, and, and I mean, it is, on the one hand, a commercial enterprise, so if there's a great project in China, can fund it. I don't think they would... They might just not call it Belt and Road, but the deal would go ahead and the money would be made available. But it is said that if you're explicitly agreed to the Belt and Road initiative, that it's easier at the Chinese end to get the money. So it's just it's just in terms of making the deal happen. If a country has explicitly said they're part of the Belt and Road, the rumour is that for, for the Chinese part of the bargain, it's just much, much easier to arrange the money and, and get the deal moving. Um... So it's not geographically focused, but if you think of the kind of primary drivers, which is this excess capacity in China, this desire to internationalise the renminbi and so on, then the kind of default is these poor and young, you know, creating markets for Chinese goods, win-win development. The default is those kind of original geographic points, because they're the kind of obvious complementary markets in the, in the biggest sense. But even though it's not actually explicitly just limited to them, you can just the economic story kind of is an easier one in those in those original geographic focused countries. So a project of the century with funding pots being made available all the time and theoretically probably available to a project anywhere, but easier to access if you've explicitly signed up to the initiative. Um, and so I don't know if you if you, uh, you probably all heard the kind of Deng Xiaoping maxim of crossing the river by feeling the stones. I like to think that this is the kind of outbound version of that. So whether you call it crossing the, you know, crossing the oceans by feeling the ports or you know, crossing the river, it's, just the, it's basically the globalised version of the Deng Xiaoping. So what that implies is that maybe China has kind of goalposts in the longer sense, but how they reach them will be a bit kind of clunky and experimental, so it's not that there's a fixed plan and you kind of wake up the next day and suddenly this country's involved or no, that's not Belt and Road. So it is, it is unpredictable and very dynamic by its nature, just as crossing the river by filling the stones was. So hence, we're all kind of in the dark and, you know, kind of trying to navigate what it means and, and when it means what it does, because you know, China itself is so big and dynamic, they're, they're quite responsive and, and open to change in a pragmatic sense. And they just caveats. Um, so, so I kind of focus on those broader, long-run economic economic variables that help to explain why now and where now. On the other hand, if, if you're really interested to kind of look at what the implications are and what the debate is in the biggest sense, historians have obviously got a breadth of, of, of opinions on even these Ming Dynasty fleets that you know they were they were about empire they were they had military implications. Um, security folk, security scholars don't see these ports as, as an amazing link to foreign trade and development they see them as a place for navy ships to stop. Um, political scholars focus kind of on a race to the bottom you know that now that China's made lots of money available, lots of donors are just saying take our money take our money, please take our money. So kind of a race to the bottom. Macro economists worry about debt crisis in countries that are, you know, kind of copiously borrowing. And Environmentalists worry that China is exporting all of its dirty industries to Africa. So those are the kind of very kind of breadth of you know lenses that people are looking at this initiative. I'm just explaining the, the broader macro kind of story behind it. So why is this Africa in focus? So kind of three points, or four points. Sorry, demography, history, economic geography and institutions. So the geography story is the one I was basically saying this is just a repeat, certainly on the on the idea of the road. Um, you know, which is this poor young, this is, this was China in 1980, and look how much money and look what the, how big the development opportunity was. Not least China itself is is no longer competitive in, in, in a wage sense. It is it is in its inland provinces, but by the time we factor in the logistics of, of getting shirts from China's inland or shoes from inland provinces to the coast. And, and then you factor in that people in Guangdong simply don't want all those peasants from Ningxia or or you know Guangxi or anywhere moving to Shanghai and Beijing. That that model isn't sustainable in China in that in that big sense. And on top of which places like Ethiopia have either get trade preferences from from the West for exporting B, they're increasingly part of kind of a trade integration initiatives within Africa and if you look at that demographic story if if those economies manage to grow there's a big market for low low-cost clothing even in Africa itself without without the kind of trade barriers there might be if they were made in China and exported to the world so um, so that's a, that's the kind of demographic story, That's, those are the new low-wage frontiers, which China no longer is, and then that kind of, this is, so this is a, a visualisation of the workforce shares and how they're changing kind of forecasts using UN, UN projections, um, so obviously China has fallen dramatically since, 2000, since 2011, their workforce share diminishing, and, and in the OECD, or sorry, in the world, the OCD would probably be almost as sharp. And then the world is generally falling, so the world is population aging. But where isn't it population aging anytime soon is sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. So it's about really those are the basically the low wage markets of tomorrow and for several generations, for several several decades, fourth, depending what happens to fertility. So just kind of getting in there now and getting that long run. And I was just in Ethiopia just to kind of Deviate for for a moment, and people were talking about the the productivity. You know, that even for all these zones and all this push, that the labour productivity in Ethiopia is still much lower than it was in, in any time recently in China. Um, it doesn't mean I think some firms aren't making money, but maybe they're not making the return they would was the labour as productive as as it was in China. At the same time, I haven't actually seen anybody systematically compare. The, the, or, or even whether qualitatively or quantitatively, go back and ask, kind of dig out the Hong Kong investors or the Taiwanese investors who were in Shenzhen in 1982 and just say, did you ever expect this? You know, were you, were you tearing out your hair in 1981 and did you think this industrial zone in China would never succeed because the staff was so useless? And, and, and maybe in 1980 or 1981 they did, which is... You know, perhaps in Ethiopia today it's more like 1983 or 1984 kind of equivalent and people are yeah this is, it, it kind of sounds good but it's, it's just impossible so I haven't really seen anyone compare kind of holding development level or productivity level or whatever constant um, so there are, there's talk of that but I haven't, you know not, it's, it's a bit time inconsistent, the, the, the comparisons are time inconsistent, I haven't seen anyone do a time inconsistent one so again this is, this is just a kind of background story I and mean, this, is, this is some research I have in progress with, with two people in, in Melbourne, and it's not yet developed, but we're kind of looking at, and we're most interested in the fertility rates, how they are falling with income in China's targets. So, in fact, this maybe should have been better, am I? Well, oh, I'll do it now. But so, the, the, the target countries of China's outbound labor-intensive, so basically the shifting of the factories, is not just to any old country. Like, they're not shifting them to Angola, which is, you know, kind of Dutch disease-affected, resource-rich, you know, central African economy. They're shifting them to the coastal equivalents of kind of what was Zhejiang, um, Zhejiang, Jiangsu, and Guangdong in China. So they're kind of trying to replicate the economic geography story, which I'll I'll go into. So their initial target countries in East Africa were Ethiopia, Kenya, and Tanzania, which are the kind of non-oil, non-resources-affected economies that have that kind of labour... Their, their advantage is more labour-based than, than commodities-based. And in Kenya and Tanzania's case, they're on the coast, they have ports, they are really the kind of Jiangsu and Zhejiang, for those of you who know what that means. Kenya is kind of... I think of Kenya as Jiangsu and Tanzania as Zhejiang. Um, even Zhejiang down to the kind of state-led background, and Jiangsu is the kind of Kenyan, freewheeling, you know, private sector-oriented coastal, um, and so we're just, we're trying to look and see how is the fertility rate trending, so is there a projected kind of demographic dividend that might emerge in these target labour intensive destinations of China's outbound investment, whether it's Silk Road or otherwise. And if you have a look at, at least to this stage, it, it really probably depends on what happens when the fertility rate, you know, reaches three. Like, will, will, it, will it keep falling? Or, and that was really the talk when I was in Kenya and, and Ethiopia recently. Yes, the fertility rate has fallen, but is the steady state African equilibrium for fertility going to be three or four, like above replacement level or below replacement level? Um, and so at least the, the kind of trend now is for the same income level, those three countries have actually got lower fertility now than what South Korea had, that's South Korea, obviously, than what South Korea had at the same income level. Um, you know that that's a case of whether that's women's education or access to um, access to contraceptives and so on. But at least the trend is a positive one. So the result of whether there is a demographic dividend to come in these target countries where China is sending its factory jobs will depend on, on the equilibrium kind of fertility rate in those countries, whether it's above or below replacement level. And so that's, that's the kind of demographic story. Now a history story. Why East Africa? Why is China? Apart from the obvious labour-intensive kind of investment story, this is the those of you who have heard of Zheng He, the 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 maritime kind of you know fleet leader of China's Ming Dynasty fleet. This I, I caught the Chinese train from Nairobi to Mombasa about three weeks ago, and I was really shocked. in the Mombasa end is literally the statue of Zheng He, and that's what it says. It's like this great Chinese navigator you know, build friendship and so if you could talk to some contrarian Ming Dynasty historians and they'll tell you that's not true, you could talk to others who'd say it's more than true. So I'm not arguing the merits of what Jong-He did, but um, at least in the Mombasa terminal, um, you know, Mombasa obviously being Africa's most important port at this point, there is now a Jong-He commemorative statue at the train station at the passenger terminal. Um, So it's kind of in terms of the the dialogue of friendly exchange and the dialogue of why we we were here, but colonialism at your end and collapse at our end ended this friendly exchange of of types. So we're just picking up where history left off. Um, This is a periodization that was actually in the first chapter of of my PhD when I was just trying to get my head around what were the key turning points, like what were the drivers of China-Africa relations over time. And I guess uh, I didn't do this from a historic perspective; it was more just a context reading. Um, and so, kind of 1500s to 1959. I literally did call this Maritime Silk Road action. It was published in 2012. Um, so John Hill reaches East Africa, the kind of Lamu area. Though China is now saying it was Mombasa. I've got no idea if it was Mombasa or if it was Lamu or if it matters. But they're officially saying it was Mombasa now, or maybe both. 1950s, um, 1979, that's that basically the Maoist era political alliances, so it's all, it all about politics and that was when the Tanzan Railway was constructed um, to get around colonialism, which in turn bought China, supported the UN for kicking out Taipei and the Security Council, so this is kind of always bargaining, 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 and, and actually I was talking to people in, in Ethiopia and Tanzania about this I like, yeah, sure China does aid really differently to all these Americans and Europeans, but but there's no kind of consensus on how big their wing is. So, you know, we might get this bridge, but you know, they get something massively amazing. So that the distribution of wins seems a bit contentious. Um, so nineteen seventy-nine to nineteen ninety-five, China was really explicit at this point, it was just developing itself, so it it turned inward a little bit to concentrate on its own development. And then Um, In 1995 is basically when China became externally energy dependent, so 1995 till the financial crisis, it was mainly interested in Angola and Sudan and, you know, these kind of big oil providers. And it was then only 2012, which is when this demographic story shifts, demand for China's export shifts so they need less oil, their environment is destroyed and people are quite rich, so the tolerance level for all this industrial activity has diminished and the demand for it has diminished as well and the population isn't there to maintain that export model anyway, let alone is their demand for it. So that was kind of so that was that period. And in 2013 the president in early two thousand and thirteen, not long after becoming president, she went to Africa we stopped in four countries, but in Tanzania was the first stop. And Tanzania, as if you kind of know the China story, as I said, I think of Kenya as, as Jiangsu and Tanzania as Jiangsu. And you know, they've got key, key port potential, just like Jiangsu and Jiangsu. They they control the kind of, you know, um, not Hebei, but like Hunan and, and, and all these provinces you know, behind them, except in, in Africa's case, their countries. So those ports are, are particularly important. So he launched this period of comprehensive development and soon after saying, okay, we're going to start comprehensively developing these ties, um, launched Development Road Initiative in, in Indonesia and in, and in Kazakhstan. So this is a, as I, as I said, I, I put this together last night because my, my laptop died i um, carry a a large bottle of water in my bag in Ethiopia. And this is from this is actually from these categories are from two thousand and nine no two thousand six actually. So they're quite old, but most of them were not have changed. So Tony Venables and, and Paul Collier through the kind of nineties and early two thousands did a lot of work on economic geography and African development and kind of the global development and economic geography story. And in the growth report, which was an initiative of the World Bank and Harvard, I think, the Kennedy School, which kind of really looked at, I think it was was either 13 or 16 high-performing economies from 1960 to 2000, and maybe just the 2000 even, and what they had in common and why they managed to industrialise and and, and become so rich. And the the, the economic geography story, which was written from the, the, sorry, so the successful story was that countries which had most readily succeeded tended to be coastal and resource poor they were driven by that scarcity to you know like they don't have commodities to export they're not um, they're not affected by Dutch disease they have access to ports so it's easier to integrate with the with the global trade system and once those coastal resource poor economies and this also is a kind of within China story as well so you think of the coastal provinces got rich first and that unlocks the ones behind them and that Africa on the other hand, has a large share of the population living in landlocked economies, much larger than other regions of the world. Um, It has a high share of economies that are resource rich and a high share of the population living in resource rich economies. And the coastal resource poor ones are smaller. They have kind of agglomerations that have smaller populations and aren't integrated into the global value chain. So, you know, even if you want to do something in Kenya, you know by the time you've imported everything from China not just not just whether it's workers but the whole value chain is now existing in China and the value chain you know it really didn't it didn't have a chance to, to compete with China during that labor-intensive competitive period so then in, in my research I looked at okay so if, if these coastal resource poor economies are the most important and they disempowered for demographic reasons and otherwise in in sub-saharan Africa is China compounding that? Or, or, or is it making that potential better or worse? And at the time they were really just importing mainly from the resource-rich countries. Um, so this is at least taking the, the, the classification of resource-rich, you can have different measures, you can use labour in manufacturing sector, you can use share of exports that are commodity, that is oil or, or so on, that is share of GDP that is commodity-based. Different ways to do it and different implications. And this, this, is, this is from Collier and O'Connell in 2006, I think. And I think they used share of exports. And um, this was at least the, the final year. This was the, the classification they put into the growth report in any case. So some of these economies may now be resource-rich and some may not. But at least that. And just by chance. So if you actually cluster them, virtually all of the coastal resource-poor ones are in East Africa. And, and those were the type of economy that was identified as important for, for long-run industrialisation of a region, for, both for access to ports, stabilisation of resource-rich economies, and unlocking trade channels for the landlocked ones behind them. So it just happens, those kind of theoretical industrial frontier economies in Africa happen to be clustered in East Africa. So since China wants to move factories and labour-intensive investments these are the kind of, conceptually at least, they're the obvious targets. So that's one another reason, apart from the jungle Ho history, another reason why why is East Africa in particular focus. Just the, the relative absence of of that the kind of resource intensive economies. So this was the earlier um, study of how, so how was China trading with these so this was basically a gravity model of China's imports from the world and then looking at instead of just saying, Okay, China's buying oil and you know commodities from Africa, kind of turning it upside down. Instead of looking at China's demand, looking at African supply, and then and then attaching that to the long-run development story. So um, these were these are coastal resource poor economies. And from 1995, you can at least see that you know, the trade. The, tr- the trend was rising exports, but nonetheless, the only economy that by 2009 had had you know exceeded the, the predicted level. Was I think Mozambique um, and all the other coastal resource poor economies were exporting below the predicted below the predicted level, whereas oh, I don't have the resource rich one, but Angola is like 40 times the the um, predicted level. And on top of that, China at the time was offering financing using like the, the Angola model, using resources as collateral. So none of these coastal resource poor economies could even access cheap Chinese financing based on the way China was allocating financing. And then China was going to this every you know, folk hack summit and boasting of its trade preferences, but its trade preferences only applied to LDCs. And almost none of these coastal resource poor economies are LDCs. So they were kind of shut out of China's financing model. This is under the old kind of resource intensive relationship. Shut out of financing, and shut out of trade preferences. And China wasn't much demanding anything they were producing. So if Collier and O'Connell and Tony Venables were correct in saying, you know, really these coastal resource poor economies need to be kind of integrated into the global economy for the rest to grow, the way China was relating to Africa economically up till 2009 wasn't helping anybody, um, at least according to that benchmark. And so then, you know, fast forward to the kind of Belt and Road, and you can see this is the... This is the, the map of the railways that are planned to be built by China, or AMAP. Um, this leg uh, has already been built, this is like, what I caught a couple of weeks ago. Mombasa to Nairobi is already operational and, and running, and at least from the outset, running quite smoothly from what I could see. I don't know, I, don't, I didn't get to talk to any of the people using it as a, as a freight train. Apparently the, the one in the north from Ethiopia to Djibouti, the freight train is working totally fine, but the passenger train hasn't yet opened, whether that's deliberate or not, whether, whether they don't actually want passengers riding the train yet, until the freight one is really successful, who knows, um, but so this is the kind of, you know, and, and again, if you imagine this is Jiangsu, you know, Jiangsu went in China in 1982, they're just trying to integrate Jiangsu into the world economy, and they're slowly building the railway lines to the, to the landlocked provinces behind that, this is the kind of equivalent thinking and, and the, the, the way the Chinese use their investment zones, it's like, well, you can't develop your whole country at the same time, which may not work in a democracy, I add. But in their thinking, you, know, you open a zone, you export, you get the foreign currency, and then you use that to develop the next bit, and the next bit, and the next bit, which you, know, you can do in China. Whether it works in Africa is a, is, a, is a different story. But so these are the kind of, you know, this is the, the Belt and Road, shipping out of the excess industrial capacity, creating global brands for China, and unlocking all these markets just the way they did in China. and Similarly in Tanzania, though Tanzania is a bit less open to Chinese dominance of these, of these railway lines, so I think they've just agreed for India and Turkey to build many of their railway lines instead. So Kenya's the kind of, almost a canary in the mine that, that does the first deals and, and maybe, maybe even gets yes. a bad deal because it's a first mover. And then it seems Tanzania kind of sits behind watches and then... Opens up to negotiation now that China's, inter- China's line in Kenya has generated much more interest. So that's the kind of broader economic story. And also, why East Africa? And this is not anything I've looked at. This is just adding this into a kind of complete story. So language happens in that East Africa is primarily an English-speaking, a primary English-speaking area, and English is the second language and in the international language of business in China. So. One of the problems of Chinese people, engineers and so on working in Africa with these investments is that often the people who go to Africa don't have particularly good English. So it's quite hard for them and they might learn it when they get there. And geez, I met people now in Kenya especially who speak Portuguese. These Chinese investors have worked in Mozambique, they speak Portuguese, one who spoke fluent an Amharic, and so on. So it is changing quite rapidly. But nonetheless, the average Chinese person speaks as a second language, speaks English, and certainly the young people. So it's just easier to do to, to do initial investments in East Africa because a, a higher percentage of Chinese going abroad will speak English, um, and the developmental baseline. Um, so hello low density their LDCs. So just a comparative. In fact, I know Ethiopia is a focus of Chinese investment, but two of the people I met, this is totally anecdotal and nothing scientific, but you know they, they said it was just much easier for them to work in Kenya than it, than it was in Ethiopia. Um, and then the, re- the East African regional integration and the trade agenda. I, I don't have the, the, the map here of the kind of tripartite trade agreement, but it's very East Africa focused, so building the infrastructure in that region makes sense just because of the kind of political push for trade integration and, and so on. Um, and then you know you've got the history you've got the demography you've got the the lack of resources dominated economies and so on so that that's kind of the picture of why did they choose Kenya why did they choose Tanzania and, and kind of Ethiopia that's the, that's really why the, the focus on on East Africa so in summary so given China's scale and continued growth potential so that's just to remind you you know China might only be growing at six percent but it's six percent of a really big number so don't be fooled into thinking that it's now smaller and slower than it is, you know, it's, it's the value added each year is bigger than ever. And so, you know, it is indeed project of the century. And she was quite explicit in his Davos speech to, you know, state that to the world that this is, this will be a kind of globalisation shifting. Whether it shifts the rules or not is a different story, but at least the kind of ethnic face of it almost um, and then mid-October meetings the next month, that'll kind of maybe give a bit of an idea of the, of, of the nature of the direction um, and on the one hand it's probably, you know, I mean it is a remarkable diversification and expansion of financing investment opportunity for poor countries today um, but, you know supply of opportunity is not necessarily equal to demand for opportunity and I really got that sense in Ethiopia and so you can see on the one hand people are happy for this amazing opportunity but it's kind of like a, an opportunity onslaught. It's like just so fast and so furious and so big and it might be the best thing ever but at the same time it's just this, the face and the speed and the, and the pace and it wasn't necessarily driven by those countries which doesn't nec- doesn't make it a bad opportunity but the navigation of, and the political settlement of that is quite, is quite tricky. Um and the silos could be vast and the opportunities, obviously, officially this can include everyone, but the, the kind of comparable, or sorry the, the complementarity of the initiative in the first instance is a bit less obvious for OECD um, countries just based on that demographic story and so on. So we're all filling the stones now basically is the conclusion, like we're all crossing the river by filling the stones now thanks to the Belt and Road. Thank you.